Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, huge guest, uh, like a, a perfect guest for this podcast, Joe Wong of the Trap Set podcast, of of uh, Parts and Labor fame, of, of, a, of a Carso fame, of the Kilowatts fame, which he forgot about even, and of a brand new solo record available on Decca Records. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can head over to the email address, turnitapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is from my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. Thank you, Tristan, for all the hard work you do. I love you so much, buddy. And you will get the message to me. You can also find me on various forms of social media, at Left for Damien. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is just by telling all your friends about it. But you can also subscribe to it and rate it on your podcast platform of choice or on iTunes. That would be great. Uh, thank you to everyone that gives it a, a you know a good review on there. I really appreciate it. Also, you can um, head over to Patreon.com and check out the stuff we do over there at the Patreon. And a huge thank you to all the people that do and support the show that way as well. And speaking of support, this show would not be possible with the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, we don't want you to do this out of your own pocket. So they helped me keep the lights on over here at Turned Out of Punk. And as you can hear right now, I'm about to uh, turn off the lights here in the old office. I'm, I have to surrender my old office to my eldest son, uh, office, recording studio, whatever this room is, record room. And I'm, I'm moving downstairs to the basement. I'm all grown up now. Turn out of punks, move into the basement. And uh, yeah, you know, it's a, a lot of costs involved in that. So, um, you know, very much appreciate everyone at the Patreon and Vans for helping that happen because it wouldn't happen without you. So thank you. Okay, on to today's show. Today on the show, speaking of podcasts, we got one of the one of the greats right now, Joe Wong of the Trap Set Podcast. Now, if you have not t- checked out the Trap Set Podcast, it's a fantastic podcast talking to to drummers and, and other musicians now, obviously, as well. But started talking to drummers, and that's because, of course, Joe is an incredible drummer. Has played in a lot of good bands over the years, Parts and Labor, A Carso, and, of course, the Kilowatts, this fantastic garage rock band that put out records on ripoff records and... And yeah, so he's, he's someone who's played in like, you know, a bunch of different types of groups and then also has now gone on to have this incredible career scoring TV shows. And he has, trust me, scored stuff you have seen. He has scored, you know, it would take me forever to go through his entire uh, IMDB of, of, of credits on that thing too. So he's an accomplished musician, kind of, you know, 
for years, and now he's got a brand new solo record that's coming out on Deco, the venerable Deco Records, the same label that put out Cox Bar and, and, and some band called the Rolling Stones, too. But um, So he's the ideal guest for this show, and this is someone that uh, I want to sit down and have this chat with, and, you know, and here we are, and we have this conversation, and what do you know? It's a lot of fun. There's no point in me rambling on anymore. Uh, I do have to apologize to my good friend who I love dearly, Jeff Petrie. I blanked on his last name. Jeff, I'm sorry. I don't know what happened. Uh, blame the weed. Blame the blame the uh, minor concussions as well. Um, you know. But anyway, sorry. Apologies, Jeff. Uh, you'll, you'll, you'll understand when it comes up to that part in the show. And that's it. Okay, I'm going to move some more stuff so I can move to the basement and we can get a, a sound that's not as echoey. And uh, that's it. Uh, sit back, relax, and enjoy Joe Wong on Turned Out a Punk. Joe, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Damien. Well, as I was just telling you off air, you're like the, the, the dream guest for this type of podcast because not only do you do a podcast, but you know, so you know how this stuff works, but also you've had this incredibly diverse career in in punk derived music or or punk born music or post-punk music or you know everything but we're going to get to all that but first i got to start this off the way they all start off which is joe how'd you get into punk do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre well i saw punk rockers on television when i was a little kid uh it was probably part of some sort of expose some sort of salacious expose on <laughs> on this new phenomenon or it wasn't even that new at that time but i'm talking like early 80s when i was a really little kid i can remember babysitters would come over and watch me and put on mtv we had cable at my house at the time and uh i remember seeing people with mohawks and how shocking it was as like a 3 or 4 year old um and then Later on, when like I actually started listening to it much later when I was a teenager, um, you know, with the popularity of Nirvana and Green Day, uh, you know, I, I remember being at summer camp and hearing my counselor playing The Descendants and really liking that and being like, oh, this is like Green Day, but better. <laughs> and um, I got their greatest hits album, Summary, when I was 14 right before I started freshman year of high school and inside of all of the SST albums at the time, I had the green, you know, summary CD, mm -hmm. but inside of all the albums was the catalog. And, um, that's, that was my gateway into, you know, bands like who's Du, black flag, uh, dinosaur junior, the Minutemen, Soundgarden had a record on SST, uh, Sonic youth had a record on or two on SST. Bad Brains had a record on SST. And so that was kind of the first gateway into punk rock. And then from there, uh, I got really into like Bay Area punk and Lookout and uh, Crimp Shrine and bands like that. And from there, um, you know, I discovered Alternative Tentacles. And that really was awesome because I was from an atheist family and hearing the Dead Kennedys was kind of validating actually because there wasn't a Richard Dawkins type figure in pop culture at the time. <laughs> and, and I, um, I, before I moved to a public school, uh, I, I went to a Jesuit school for my freshman year of high school. That's where I met my best friend to my, to this day. But, um, but, uh, we would listen to dead Kennedys and, uh, 
and it and it was uh, kind of a it was a uh, it was like a feeling of validation amidst the Catholic world. <laughs> uh, going back to before you kind of got into the, the the punk rock stuff or heard any of this stuff, what kind of music were you into? Well, the first album that I ever owned was Thriller, and I was obsessed with Michael Jackson. Uh, mm-hmm. from an early age. Then from there, uh, you know, I was a little bit precocious as a kid. Um, like I started getting into what older kids were listening to, like um, Depeche Mode and Faith No More and Tom Petty and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, just like Prince. Uh, you know, I, I, I was just obsessive about certain things that I would hear uh, on the radio. And um and then when I started playing drums, which was when I was 11 uh, in 1991, that's when um, like Bad Motorfinger and Nevermind and albums like that came out and I got into grunge and then that kind of in turn led me to punk rock. You mentioned having cable and, and you know, watching MTV. And I just remember around that time when when all that stuff was hitting, you you could turn on MTV and the sugar cubes would be on. Like I would go on vacation with my family and, and watch MTV and like there was just so much cool stuff they were playing. Yeah. And, and, you know, when I think back on it, I remember the cool stuff. I'm sure there was plenty of garbage. Too, yeah, of obviously. <laughs> yeah. And then of course, by the time I got into punk rock, then I hated MTV. Yeah. What it represented at the time. Yeah. And so going back to when you got into punk rock, where was that from? Was it once again through radio? Was there like alternative radio or is it through these MTV well, videos? Well, like I said, like I was at summer camp the summer before I went to high school and one of the counselors had descendants playing on a CD. And and so um, that was like the first time I heard an independent punk rock band at the time. And it was like it was an easy leap. It was like a pop you know, poppy or punk rock thing. And then it was like a gateway into all the other stuff on the label. Absolutely. But even before that, like sort of getting into Nirvana and things like that, was that through MTV or was there sort of... Yeah, it was both. Yeah, both. I mean, it was just part of the cultural zeitgeist. I mean, they played it at middle school dances at my school too. So (laughs) yeah, yeah, I was into that. And then soon after that, like um, The Chronic came out. That was a huge album too. And and I, I just remember, you know, liking all that kind of stuff pop music what about locally around that time were there any sort of like big alternative bands um well the i grew up in milwaukee <laughs> and uh, the violent femmes were certainly pretty big and then um you know i noticed you had butch Vagon. obviously uh you know he produced lots of bands that were part of the touch and go scene in chicago including decroitson which was from milwaukee but i wasn't conscious of Detroitson until after they were broken up. So I never got to see them. I, I, I became friends with some of them after, you know, long after the band had gone on hiatus, but um, yeah, those were kind of the local bands. And then when I was in high school, um, like second wave emo was pretty big in the indie rock scene and bands like um, the promise ring were from Milwaukee and, and uh, that kind of thing was happening. I, the Violent Femmes, I think some of their best songs were from that kind of like early 90s period. You know, they did that record that only came in Australia, but it's got some like killer, killer songs on it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, everybody talks about the, you know, 80s stuff, but 
I think they remained a great band through that era that you're talking about. And I think they, I, I know that one of the band members moved to Australia and they have a huge following there. So maybe that's why it only came out there. Yeah. It's, it's also weirdly the only record of theirs that's not on streaming. It's a, uh... You know, I remember finding as a kid and just being like, my gosh, this is like, you know, because as you're saying, it's like a one hit wonder band to a lot of people, but they are a, an incredible band the whole way through. Oh, my gosh. I think like the very first thing I remember was probably, you know, just watching TV and seeing, you know, Madness or Ian Dury on on like early much music was pretty good. We had city limits here. So we, we had like the odd, odd show on here playing kind of like, you know, alternative indie new wave type stuff. So I guess it would have been through that, but it was, you know, but it, once again, I think it's like you're, we're the same age. So I think, you know, you get these little things of it popping up, but it's that huge explosion kind of kicked off by Nirvana. And then, you know, green day eventually kind of takes it up from there. That was really yeah. my gateway. I remember when Green Day came out, they were being branded as a punk rock band, you know, mm -hmm. whereas Nirvana was grunge. You know, that was their commercial categorization. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Green Day was like, it's a return to like punk is back. That's what they said on MTV. You know, um, like maybe someone like Daisy Fuentes or Duff said that. <laughs> I can I can remember they're like punk rock is back. So and of, of course, they came from the Gilman Street scene. And, and that Bay Area scene, which, you know, birthed lots of other great bands like Crimshrine, for example, um, or Op, Op Ivy or things like that. So. Um, so, yeah. And, and but it was funny because then after after that band, like after I um, got into the more obscure by comparison stuff, I swore off Green Day because they were on Warners, you know, <laughs> at the time. <laughs> and I was being a Puritan, a punk Puritan. So what was the first band you played in? Well, I mean, there was a kid that lived up the block from me and we had a cover band when I was 11, but that wasn't like an actual band that was writing music. Then when I was 14, I joined a band that had about 10 different names over the course of its like three-year existence. And we made a seven inch and a tape. Um, and it was kind of like, I was super, there were, I didn't know that many other kids that played music and, and the other guys in the band were super into Weezer. And I was really into dead Kennedys at the time. And so it was kind of like this mismatch, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like a weird mix of people that didn't share uh, the same aesthetic. And, yeah. uh, but then after that, I, I played in my first kind of touring band when I was 17 um, with like my best friend at the time. And that band was called a Carso, which is an obscure Dune reference from the appendix. And um, to show you like how nerdy we were, but <laughs> we were, we were influenced by what was happening on touch and go at the time, like Don cab. Mm -hmm. And then also by like the third wave of discord bands like Hoover and also um, like what was happening in San Diego at the time with like bands like Antioch Arrow and Heroin and stuff like that. So that was kind of our convergence of influences at the time. Um, and that's the first band that I really like traveled around with and made records with and things like that.
But you were also in the kilowatts. Was that at the same time? That, like, oh, oh yeah, at the same time. <laughs> Wait, how did you know about that? Oh, that's you know seven about inch. That band? Oh my gosh, I like I I wanted to get into the Wisconsin garage rock stuff with you because I think I think Kryptonite Records. That's like uh, one of those deep cut labels where everything from Sons of Krypton, obviously, but like there's just so much great stuff on that label. The Kilowatts was my friend Ryan's band, and um, I was the original bass player of it. Uh, and I, yeah, we made a seven inch. I f- totally forgot about that. <laughs> but yeah, we made a seven inch. That was around the same time that I started that band at Carso. Yeah. And then I got busy. Like that band became, I was more invested in that band because I was more of a creative partner in that. And so that, that became my focus. But yeah, that was around the same time. I would say we probably made that seven inch in like 96, something like that. Mm-hmm. And I'd never played bass before, but I just, uh, you know, tried it out for that band and, it, and uh, yeah, it was fun, but I, I probably was only in the band for about six months and we probably only played about, I don't know, five shows or something when I was in it. Um, but yeah, wow. <laughs> I forgot all about that. Well, I, I gotta, I gotta go further on this one then with you. Is that story in the liner notes true about you being a diabetic and, and Ryan insisting on buying you or his mom buying you full sugar, Dr. Pepper's? So he was a diabetic. Oh, he's a diabetic. And, and oh, so to accommodate it. me, a non-diabetic, his mom would buy regular Dr. Pepper for me and diet Dr. Pepper for him. <laughs> okay, that's much. I thought it was the other way around. I'm like, oh my God, he's trying to kill you. No wonder you quit that band. No. Uh, <laughs> and and I, I can tell you another memory from that era is uh, on my birthday, this was when in high school. So like, High school boys don't buy each other birthday presents, but Ryan got me a VHS copy of Repo Man that year, <laughs> which was great. The perfect gift. So what? what's this band before these, you know, these other two? Well, it had a bunch of different names. We made one split seven inch with my other friend's band, but it, it had, we started out, we were called the squares. Then we were called junior high. Then we were called energy equals genius, which is a rollerball reference. <laughs> um, but that, that was the band. It was the first band I had where the, where we were writing our own songs. And like I said, like the other guys in the band were writing this melodic, poppy, Weezer-esque rock. And I was dragging it down with like, I would always try to speed it up and <laughs> put in crazy drum parts that were incongruous. That's and they, they ended up replacing me when I started the third band, Carso. That's awesome, though, that you like, you know, are putting out records that young. Yeah. Um, it, it just, I mean, it was, it, I was consumed by it at the time and I, and I don't, I, I, you know, I was really serious about playing shows and, and trying to make stuff. Um, in 94, I saw, it was either at the end of 94 or, the, or early 95, I saw Fugazi on the red medicine tour and they were kind of like the gold standard as far as punk rock to me, as far as, a method of operation. And, um, so I, I really looked up to people like that, that would make their own records and figure out their own way of doing things. DIY, if you will. Absolutely. And I, and there's, and there is almost like such a, I don't know. It feels like there's like a lot of like smaller labels too in Milwaukee, you know, like it feels like it is a real DIY scene. Like a lot of kids doing it like that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how conscious I was of all of that at the time. We had our own little label called Captain Midnight Records, which 
consisted of a PO box and like a tape and a couple seven inches. And I remember we got one fan letter at one point <laughs> at the PO box that it was extremely exciting. It was from somebody <laughs> in Michigan, I think. Uh, and it felt like it monumental, like, mm-hmm. wow, this is somebody out of state heard this. And I can remember um, we played some shows in Chicago and I remember going to like reckless, restless records and selling or giving seven inches on consignment <laughs> at the time, <laughs> just feeling so excited about it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it definitely is like the amount of effort it takes to write a physical letter, you know, like, so just like how many, how many kids had the wherewithal to put pen to paper and, and go and buy a stamp to send. Those did songs. you ever write, did you ever write letters to bands that you were fans of? I certainly wrote them, but I don't think I ever had the wherewithal to actually wind up sending it. That was the, I would write it and be like, yeah, you know, got to get a stamp now. I'm never going to do that. You know? Um, I was, I went to Ian McKay's house, uh, like, last year and or the discard house and he saved every single letter he's ever gotten and he has it categorized like i think he had he has it segregated in like regular people letters and then famous people letters (laughs) i seem to remember i mean he didn't put it in those terms but it was like here's the section of people you might know and here's like other people you know I wonder if he ever goes back and has to like reassess and bring certain people up to the big time. Like this guy's famous. You would have to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, going back to kind of like Milwaukee at that point. So, you know, the kilowatts, I guess would have played in a completely different scene than you're, than you're playing with your, with your main band. Right. Like it's a sort of, I mean, there wasn't really a scene. I mean, we would just not really because, you know, at that time there weren't that many places to play. And some of the places that we would play were basements and a basement show would be a conglomeration of all different, you know, a mismatch of all different kinds of bands. And same thing with the all ages clubs. It would be, you know, inevitably at that time we would play with the ska band Mm -hmm. and then it would be like a punk band and a weird, you know, uh, art rock band or whatever. Um, so, so, uh, I don't know. I don't think it was, it wasn't a different scene as far as I was concerned. What what, what was your first punk show that you went to? Mm, well, the the first one that felt that I, that made a huge impact was Fugazi um, when I was 14. And, um, and then shortly after that, I started figuring out where the basement shows were and um ended up seeing tons of great bands in basement shows. And then when I was 18, uh, my band, me and my bandmate and one other guy took over one of the punk houses in Milwaukee. So there were already bookings there. And um, I remember the first show that we put on was for two discord adjacent bands, the boom and the sorts. And uh, those featured ex members of, Hoover, including, you know, other bands. But um, then we had Taro Bolero, which was the guy from Antioch Arrow's new band, played in the basement. And then bands like Modest Mouse played in that basement, too. Um, And then years later, I was watching this reality show called Hoarders, and that house was featured on the very first episode of Hoarders. (laughs) Like somebody moved in and was hoarding food. 
Wow. Were they a punk person? I guess not. I guess not they, at all. It no. was not at all. But I didn't even recognize it at first. But then they showed the basement, and, and I recognized the basement because that's where I used to practice drums. And there were so many shows that went on down there, and there were still stickers from the bands that had played there. And oh, I was awesome. blown away. But the, the basement was then there was like food storage down there and rotting food, like knee deep, as far as I remember. And I remember when we lived in that house, it was absolutely disgusting. It was yeah. three 18-year-old boys um, that were let loose on the world for the first time. And we didn't even have a garbage can for the first month. We would just throw shit on the floor. But this woman that moved in managed to make it even more disgusting. There were squirrels living in the walls when we were there, too. <laughs> it was just <laughs> insane. And it got burgled thrice. That's probably the only time ever a landlord was like, please let the punk kids come back. Please. Right. <laughs> Oh, uh, would a would a Carso when when you went out on tour? What kind of bands would you be playing with? Sort of the same bands you'd be booking shows for. Yeah, those kind of bands. Like we would. Um, I remember the way that we booked the shows is we would just ask other bands that came to our house or that were you know based in Milwaukee where we should play. You know, and we would set up. We, we booked the tour ourselves, and we would set up shows in certain key cities and then try to find other places in between. And, um, and, and we also did have a copy of the rocket maximum rock and roll book, your own fucking life book, but it wasn't really ever up to date. So it wasn't that fruitful, but um, maybe it resulted in a show or two. And then often we would just, we, we would just jump on shows. If we didn't have somewhere to play that night, we would just, ask a band we knew if we could come play on the show and they'd be like, well, you can't get paid. We'd be like, we don't care. Um, and at the time, you know, gas was under a dollar in some places. And um, we ate stuff like Taco Bell burritos for 59 cents. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was vegan at the time, so no cheese, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it was, we could, we could make it work for $30 a night. And we had, um, we, we would go get shirts, like undershirts, either from a discount store or from a thrift store and silkscreen those. And I think we sold those for three bucks. We sold our CDs for three bucks um, and uh, seven inches for three bucks. So, you know, then that would potentially be another 30 to 50 bucks a night. And uh we never lost money. We we broke even somehow. We had a six hundred dollar van, um, and the exhaust system fell out at one point, and then we just put it back into place with a bass string. <laughs> so, what was your first tour? The first tour was when I was in high school during spring break. We went from Milwaukee down to Austin and back, uh, and so. I think we played like uh, we played in I think Champaign Urbana. I think we might have also played in Normal Illinois. I think we played in Columbia, Missouri. We may have played in St. Louis that time. We definitely played in Denton, Texas at Rubber Gloves. And uh we played at a video arcade um that was on Guadalupe uh near the University of Texas in Austin. Uh, I'm trying to remember where else we played. Uh, but I do remember when we played at um, Rubber Gloves, we played with the band called The Paper Chase, which 
uh, the singer of which has become a Grammy-winning producer, John Congleton. <laughs> oh, wow. He did. Uh, he's done great records for people like Angel Olsen, Sharon Van Etten, St. Vincent, people like that. It's kind of wild when you go through this, the scene, you know, I guess like it'd be the, almost like the post-hardcore scene of like the late 90s. Just like how many interesting people came out of it, like, you know, uh, Jack Johnson, like all the way to uh, Steve Aoki to, you know, like it's a it's it's amazing how many people were kind of drawn to to that scene. I didn't know that Jack Johnson came out of that scene. He, he made a, a he, he, he's like was his golden messenger and all those people are are kind of part of the same oh, okay. heart, heart attack kind of kind of seen ex ignata and those types of bands i think that actually jack johnson made a documentary about them if i'm not mistaken we're talking about this the guy that's primarily known for surf kind of folky surf music yeah the guy that that had the big hit for the curious george movie a couple years ago okay yeah Yeah, i mean because i know his i know his drummer adam really well he's a great guy but i didn't realize that uh, i knew adam came from a punk rock background, but I didn't know Jack did too. Yeah. Apparently Jack does as well. Like he made this ex documentary a couple of years ago, or I guess years ago back in the day. Um, you know, and it's, it's just so bizarre how, you know, like none of these people's stuff sounds like the, the music, you know, they were making back then yourself included, you know, but like, it's, it's just so amazing, you know, like how few people were at these shows yet, how many of them are doing something like this. What do you mean? Something like this, the podcast? No, 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 not even a podcast. I mean, just something like important in music. Something, yeah, okay. You know, or stadium music even. Like, you know, yeah. I, I, I don't think there's many Battle of the Bands that had that many people winding up with careers in music. Yeah, probably not. Although the other day I was talking to um, my, nominally my my label mates, um, the Zombies, and they yeah. they they're first record deal was the result of winning what they called a beat contest, which is a battle of the bands in, in Britain. And that's how they got signed to DECA in the early sixties. I kind of uh, think by the time we were playing battle of the bands though, it was more like ticket scams, like sell right, tickets like to be able to play kid pay to play and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like guitar center, maybe sponsors it and you win like a shitty crate amp. Yeah, exactly. Or like a crappy set of symbols. Or a discount um, or a $50 gift certificate or something. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I think the one thing is like, even though maybe the music that, that uh, I make doesn't bear a resemblance to what I was doing in the nineties. Um, I, I do think that like this, the spiritual foundation of that music is part of my DNA, my creative DNA. And um, it informs everything that I do. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, I think that's the, that's the thing about that scene too, is it seems like it was like out of all the punk scenes that were kind of happening around the same time, it was one of the most creatively free. Right. Yeah. I think it was, you know, kind of more in the mold of bands like Minutemen that were spiritually punk, but that were kind of creating their own style Mm -hmm. and not that my band was that innovative, but you know, that's at least what our aspiration was. Did you guys ever tour Europe or is it just America? No, just America. We did. We we never made a full length album. We made like a split CD with a band that later signed to Discord called uh, Farrakhet, mm-hmm. and we made a EP, and then we made a seven inch. And 
if we would have written regular songs, we could have made an LP, but all of our songs had like 20 parts and like <laughs> multiple time signature changes and things like that. And it was probably closer to like, yes, or King Crimson than, um, than like punk rock music or, uh, but the way that we came at it was through bands like shellac or Don Caballero or something. And I didn't even know about the more adventurous yes stuff until a little bit later, you know, I didn't actually realize that that existed <laughs> mm-hmm. because I had a, I had a mandate at the time where I didn't, I didn't listen to music on major labels. <laughs> oh, I know that well. <laughs> Unless it was like Impulse, which later was acquired by MCA, you know, or then Universal probably. But it was still, in my mind, an indie label. And I could you could still buy LPs on Impulse for like 50 cents, you know, at used record stores at the time because mm-hmm. it was the CD era. And where were you getting into the jazz stuff from? Um, going to record stores, uh, I, I, the, my way into it was through noisy, uh, kind of free avant-garde stuff like Albert Eiler and Ornette Coleman. And, um, like my introduction into Coltrane was his more adventurous stuff with Rashid Ali, like interstellar space. And then I, then from there later, I kind of like went all the way back to bebop and got obsessed with all that stuff too. But, um, it, I felt like the, the aggressive, uh, parallel to punk rock made sense to me at that time. And going back as the transition into the next, you know, sort of towards the end of the band, was there like more sort of a scene developing within Milwaukee at that time? Or like, what was the scene kind of like locally shaping up? Well, you were on Jade Tree, right? Yes. So there was one of the biggest bands ever to be on Jade Tree. The Promise Ring was from Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of, that was part of what the scene was. Um, I mean, they were the biggest band, indie band in, in town around the time that I was leaving. And there were other bands. Uh, there was a band called uh, Compound Red that was on, DeSoto Records, which was, I don't know if you're familiar with that label, but it was run by Kim Coletta, formerly of Jawbox mm-hmm. uh, from the DC area. So there was stuff like that. Um, but I left, I left when I was 19. And you moved to DC, right? Um, well, for, I, I did it eventually, but I, I went to music school for a couple of years. Where, where, where'd you go to music school? The anti-punk institution, Berkeley. <laughs> I there's a lot of punk rockers that came out of Berkeley, I think. Like, you know. Maybe. <laughs> what was your experience like getting there? And, and and what was Boston like compared to where you were experienced before? It was, well, I'd never lived anywhere else before. So it was, I think it, that was really healthy to be in a completely different environment. Um, the school itself wasn't a really good fit for me. I, mm-hmm. I was hoping that I was going to find people to play music with, but I really didn't find anybody that was on the same wavelength as me. I think, um, you know, having played in indie bands and stuff from a young age, I wanted to really study other styles of music and and learn more. And so as a mission statement, you know, going there was uh, constructive, but it it wasn't a good fit. Like I, I felt like the way that material was presented there was counter to the spirit of that material 
counter to the scene from which it arose, you know, mm-hmm. if we're talking about bebop in the 40s, it, like the, the way that it was codified for academic presentation didn't feel exciting to me. It felt like rote. Um, but on the other hand, you know, it was a time when I was dedicating myself to really studying and working hard uh, in a way that I had before. And um, it was pre-streaming music. Um, there, there was like LimeWire or some of those kind of peer-to-peer things happening, but um, I didn't have broadband. And so the, the library there was fantastic. Um, you know, I could sit and watch Ornette Coleman laser discs or, um, you know, King Crimson VHSs and listen to records all day and then practice all night if I wanted to. So in that way, it was good. I mean, if I had to do it all over again, I probably wouldn't have gone to school. I would have just moved to a place and maybe studied with a great teacher or two and worked at a recording studio and gotten out into the real world. Did you, were you completely immersed in school or did you have any time to kind of go out and check out what was happening musically at that time in Boston? Yeah, by that time I had, um, I had plenty of friends that I'd met through touring, Mm -hmm. most of whom were older and and they would come through and play at places like the Middle East or TT to the Bears and I would go there. And, uh, you know, I would also try to go, I, I saw one of the greatest performances of my life. I saw Elvin Jones, who's my favorite drummer ever and one of my favorite musicians ever, you know, and I, and I got to meet him and, and that was amazing. I, you know, he never would have come to Milwaukee at that time. Maybe he would have, um, in an earlier era when there were more clubs, but it it was amazing to be able to see that level of talent. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, so I would try to get out there. It, it also feels like Boston just has such a, you know, like once again, like a place that has just so many little scenes happening at once or so, so many, like, you know, just so many kids there going to all the different schools that there's just like, you know, a little scene for everything. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the scenes that I was conscious of at the time were, uh, some house show scene <laughs> and, uh, the middle East was like the, probably the place would out there that I would go to the most, um, for shows and, um, and then diving into jazz. There was a club, um, by my apartment that was 21 and over. And I, so I couldn't actually go in, but I would just watch from outside because lots of great people would go sit in if they were in town. Um, <laughs> it sounds kind of sad in retrospect, but, um, yeah. Well, so did you play other than, you know, you know, obviously jamming with people, but did you try and do any bands when you were in Boston? I couldn't find anybody to play with. Um, I, I also kind of didn't want, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't necessarily want to just do another band from the same exact kind of aesthetic that I had been in before and I was just kind of exploring and trying to figure out what I wanted to try and and I was only there for two school years so I guess in total it was you know shorter than two years and so I I I didn't really I'd certainly met some friends outside of school that I'm still friendly with um but uh I I didn't find any bandmates and so after that you moved to DC right 
Yeah, I had a little pit stop. I, I moved to a farmhouse in northern Wisconsin for a little while, and I was just I was trying to process everything I had learned in school and figure out, you know, how to uh, metabolize all that information. So I was just practicing like 14 hours a day. And then um, the guitar player from the band Farrakhet, which my previous band had made a split album with, asked me to come join a band with him in DC. And that was with him. And then a guy called Jake Kump, who had played bass in a discord band called Blue Tip. Um, but that, that was a really short-lived kind of, uh, it, it didn't work out, but it, it was the, my time in DC was really formative. It was the first time I was not in school and I was earning a living, um, as a barista and a waiter and kind of the first taste of really living on my own. Um, and I was meeting lots of people that are still great friends to this day. And what, what kind of was the scene like by the time you got to DC? It was great. I mean, I was I was at the Black Cat almost every night and there were always great bands playing there. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I still have dozens of friends that I met during that time that I talk to all the time. It feels like it would have been, um, you know, like almost like a, a period of transition before like the, uh, you know, like there's there's sort of like the last wave of the 90s DC bands are kind of like before they formed into the new 2000 incarnations. Right. I mean, this, well, this was, this was in 2002, the beginning of 2002, I moved there. So bands like, um, Q and not you were around. Mm -hmm. Um, but then there were also, you know, I, I worked at this coffee shop and there was this style of music that was popular at the time called lounge music. Um, not to be confused with like, uh, mid-century lounge music, but it was more of an electronic thing. And um, one of the singers from a band called Thievery Corporation was my manager at the coffee shop. So there was that. And, and they were, I mean, although they were stylistically a lot different from Discord, they kind of modeled themselves after that business model. And then there was another guy that worked at the coffee shop named Benji Faree, who later put out some records on Domino. Um, and then, um, you know, this, this was my first exposure to Go-Go, mm -hmm. um, which for people that don't know is a local DC style of music. And, um, I, you know, I had actually remembered the song Doing the Butt from <laughs> the 80s. That was like a, a hit on the radio or a minor hit, but I didn't know that it was part of this whole giant um, deep scene in DC. And then I worked with a bunch of, people from Ethiopia because uh, DC has one of the largest populations of Ethiopian immigrants in the United States. And so then I was exposed to lots of great Ethiopian music, including one of my favorite artists, Alimayu Ashete, um, who had a couple records um, as part of the Ethiopiques uh, box set. But um, there was an Ethiopian record store down the street from the coffee shop where I worked, and I would go buy tapes and records there, too. So, th I mean, there was just a, a lot of different stuff to dive into. Mm -hmm. No, it, and it also, you know, like you, you're bringing up, uh, you know, lounge and, and, you know, even DC hardcore or the Discord stuff or Gogo or, or -Go especially. Like, it's amazing how DC has got so many unique styles for this like place. Like, they're, they're just... 
you know, and even like even the way punk and hardcore is kind of taken up there, it's very unique compared to other places where you almost have like a like like an overarching scene with Discord. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and um, you know, you, you could even make the argument that the music called emo comes from bands like Rites of Spring from DC. Um, and of course, like this was long after Bad Brains were in DC, but I mean, that's one of the most important bands in the whole genre, uh, if you call it a genre, uh, you know? So uh, it's an interesting place for as seemingly insular and transient uh, to, to create that many different styles and, and uh, important bands over the years. And it's not known for it. Like if you talk to somebody in the general public, they don't understand that all of these um, super influential s- scenes have arisen from DC. Yeah. Like you even go back further, like pentagrams from there or pussy galore is from there. Jennifer from Royal trucks is from there. It's just like, mm-hmm. it just churns out, you know, I, Brian Baker was on the show and talked about the great bluegrass scene that I was completely oblivious to that comes from DC. It just feels like, like you're saying, it's not known for it. Like you never think of, dc music city but it it kind of is low-key oh yeah and and the the coffee shop where i worked was right next to a place called madame's organ which had all sorts of like roots rock stuff at the time but it's actually where bad brains played a bunch of shows yeah um and of course you know henry rollins aka henry garfield is from there and um yeah it's it's crazy yeah, it's amazing. So what what eventually, though, drove you to move to New York as opposed to staying in D.C.? Well, so after I left that band, um, they went on to kind of reform and they became a band called Medications. And they were a great band. Um, and then uh, I moved back to Wisconsin for a little while and started scoring films. And as a, it was purely accidental or incidental. Um, you know, some friends of mine were making a film. They needed music. Another friend and I made the music. We had no idea how to work with the picture. We didn't know any of the conventions surrounding that format, but we just figured it out DIY style. And and, and then that movie ended up getting a distribution deal. And, and I was working as a waiter at the time. And um, I remember the film was showing at the movie theater next to the restaurant where I was working. <laughs> um <laughs> But yeah, uh, so that kind of started my scoring career. And then um, a couple of years after that, I started playing with Mary Timoney, who I know has been on your show, yes. right? And um, Another Mary, DC god. Exactly. Right? And, and she had been in Boston at the same time as me. But, and of course, I was familiar with her band Helium, but I didn't know her at the time. And I never saw Helium back then. Um, but she was kind of like indie rock royalty in Boston. Um, but anyway, uh, I started playing with Mary um, in 2004. And on one of the tours that we did together, um, actually at that point, we were both playing in a band with Amy Dominguez, who is a cellist who has played with bands like Fugazi on some of their later records, but who's primarily a viola de gambist now playing early music. Um, anyway, Amy had a band, uh, called Garland of Hours that Mary and I were both playing in. And, um, another friend of mine, actually the singer from Acarso, we all comes back to that, um, 
let me know that a band called Parts and Labor in New York was looking for a new drummer. Um, the drummer that preceded me, Chris Weingarten, was leaving to focus on his career as a music journalist. And um, I hadn't really heard that band, uh, but I started listening to them and really enjoyed it. And then I just emailed them and asked if I could try out when, when Garland of Hours went through New York and played at the cake shop. So um, that was in 2007. And um, I, re I went and met them at their practice space in Williamsburg and it, it felt good. And I ended up getting in the band and that's what um, led to me, you know, spending a lot more time in New York. Uh, going back to that documentary you talked about scoring, was that the Yes Men documentary? Yes. The first one from 2003, right? Correct. Yeah. I worked at a video store at that time and that was a very popular rental at the video store. <laughs> Great. What, did it originally get distributed by MGM or was it prior, was it disinformation that did it first? It was United Artists, um, which was part of MGM. Okay. And that, that's, that deal was made when I think it either played at Toronto or Sundance. I think it played at both, but at one of those festivals, it, it was sold. Um, and, and then, uh, you know, I went on to work on a few more films with that same team. And, and then we actually also worked, I worked on both sequels to that Yes Men series, to that first one. Weirdly, the uh, guy that I did a wrestling TV show with a couple of years ago, the director of that had done some work with the Yes Men too. So it all weirdly comes back full circle somehow. What's that person's name? Uh, his, his name's Jeff. And, uh, oh, you probably need his last name too, which I'm blanking on right now, but I will okay. probably look it up in my phone. Um, but, uh, yeah, we did this, uh, wrestling TV show for vice a couple years ago and, uh, it was, uh, it was awesome working with him, but he was, you know, I remember that he was very, I can't find his last name right now. I'll try and find it. I'll, I'll send it to you later on, but he's a, out of Vancouver and he was like, oh, I worked on mm -hmm. yes man stuff. And I love that first documentary i remember watching that in the video store uh many times during closing check out count out times <laughs> it's a good movie it yeah is. so it, i mean it was fortunate to to get to work on that as my first project as a composer absolutely so and that's become like a, a huge part of your life professionally i guess is is doing composing for film and tv right yes it's kind of my primary occupation and how does the approach differ doing that as opposed to like writing a song for like a, for a band that you're playing in or working on a stuff for, for a group you're playing. In. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, I always use the metaphor that, well, there's a couple metaphors I could use, but it's like, uh, it's like being an architect rather than being a sculptor. Like, mm -hmm. you know, when you're scoring to picture it's like having a plot of land and a function that your work has to uh, fulfill or it's like, you know, cooking for somebody else instead of cooking for yourself. And um, so there, there are certain parameters that the, that the music needs to um, fall under and it needs to ultimately um, serve the emotional needs of whatever's happening on screen and, and help further the story if necessary. And so, um, you know, those parameters are out of your control and you're not the final arbiter of whether it's working. That's the, that's up to the director or the showrunner in TV. Um, so it's freeing in a certain way. And it's um, in some ways it's less creatively vulnerable than making a statement of your own and, mm -hmm. and having to decide if that's how you want it to be. 
in other ways, it's more vulnerable because you're putting all of your work in the hands of somebody else to judge it. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, those are kind of the main differences. One thing I've also wanted to talk to you about, because you are an expert on drummers as being a drummer, but also, you know, through trap set and becoming, uh, you know, very much immersed in, in a drummer's mind. Um, why are so many drummers drawn to comedy? Like that's something that's come up on this podcast, but like from John Belushi drumming for the dead boys, Craig Ferguson drumming for Nico from the velvet underground to like, you know, like very like Fred Armisen, John Worcester. Like it just feels like out of all the positions in the band, that's where the humor comes from. And don't forget that Chevy Chase was the original drummer of Steely Dan. Real, there you go. I, they I, all went to Bard. They went to Bard together. <laughs> oh my gosh! So it is. It is something with. It's a phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. I, I you know early on in the podcast I did a funny drummers month where it was all people in comedy who were also drummers. So that month was Todd Berry, one of my favorite standups, Fred Armisen, John Worcester, and um, Ron Lynch, and um, I think. Uh, you know, if you think about the personality of great comedians, you know, they're generally depressed, fucked up people. And I think that drummers are often the most abused, underappreciated members of the band. So maybe that maybe the only way to kind of, um, you know, an out, a, a good outlet for that would be comedy. Who do you think the best comedy drummer is? Like, who do you think, like, but using both sets of skills, right? So they oh. have to be funny and an amazing drummer. Oh, well, I would say, I, I won't use the word best, but if you're asking, like, who's um, got supernatural strengths in both arenas, yeah, both. I would say, I would say John Worcester. A hundred percent. Absolutely. He's a fantastic, fantastic drummer, a natural drummer, uh, a versatile drummer but he has his own style and, and, you know, obviously he can play with everybody from Bob Mole to um, the mountain goats to super chunk. And then one time he came out to LA and asked if he could stay at my house because he had a session. It turned out he was playing with Nick cave, you know, <laughs> so he can pretty much do it all. And he's, you know, as part of Sharpling and Worcester, one of the best uh, comedy duos, uh, of all time, I would put him up with Bob and Ray and um, and folks in that pantheon. Yeah, and also like thinking about the run that they had, like they were doing some years where they would do fifty some odd shows a year, almost you know, and that's like no TV seasons that long. Like that is an impressive run. Yeah, and and they put out a box set a few years ago, um, which was just the tip of the iceberg, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, no, definitely. It's uh, the best show, I think, when you're when you're a musician, it just that's the comedy that feels like it's coming from a place of knowing that very few comedy can come from. That's right. Uh, we're we're uh, back to Todd Berry. Have you Todd Berry's band? I think is one of the most underrated bands, too. His the chant incredible band. Um, I, I listened to some when I was prepping for the. Uh, conversation with him, but I I can't say that I've gone deep with them. But may, but since you're saying that, maybe I'll revisit it. Uh, I'm sure that Todd would tell you that they're the greatest band ever. 
there's that one LP that that he plays on that to me sounds like it could have come out of like New Zealand and been on Flying Nun. Like it's that level of kind of quality to it. But I don't know. It's just something something about that position of the band. Like you said, it must be the depression that really brings it out in them. Yeah, the downtrodden member of the band, the disposable member of the band. You know, so many drummers that have been on my show have gotten kicked out of a band you know, that was central to their identity. And then they have to, you know, reconcile who they are with who they were. <laughs> and that doesn't happen as often to singers. I mean, of course, there are some exceptions, but um, I guess it's because the average listener can't hear the, you know, creative voice of a drummer as readily. I, th- I But it's also, it's weird, and this might be coming from the fact that I'm the singer, not the drummer, but... You know, the lead singer, it's harder to kick the lead singer out. I'll give you that. But at the same time, like a lead singer can't really have a second act or a third act in the same way a drummer can. Hmm. I'm, I'm trying to think about examples of lead singers that have done that. Well, like, so yeah. let's let's think of an exception that proves the rule. Well, that's like Nick Cave, I guess, would be the, the one of the few that's kind of like done it repeatedly in different styles or different bands. But normally the voice is so tied to a band that it's really hard to hear that voice in a different context. Whereas like, you know, you brought up John Worcester, John Worcester has played in a, 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 like, you know, a, a little book of amazing bands over mm-hmm. the years. Right. So you're saying the same quality that makes lead singers um, seemingly more indispensable is also a mixed blessing because it, it boxes you in. Exactly. Like you're never going to have a lead singer, like, look at Mackie from the from the Cro-Mags. He was in the Fun-Loving Criminals. He was in Frontline. And he was in the Cro-Mags, you know? Like, that guy has done it all, you know? John Joseph kind of blood clotting the Cro-Mags, you know? Like, you're always going to hear John's voice, and you're going to be like, oh, that's John Joseph. Right. So you're not talking about, um, you're not talking about, you know, you mentioned the Sugar Cubes before. You're not talking about how Bjork went from the singer of the Sugar Cubes to having a solo career being completely separate. Because you're saying there's a continuity there that's unmistakable. Yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a great way of putting it. Exactly. Where whereas you know, for a singer to have an established group, not you know, develop into a solo artist, but even to go from like a solo artist and transition into a new group, you're always going to associate that voice with something. I mean, yeah, unless unless you totally change it up. Yeah, I think about people like um, you know Scott Walker is an easy example mm-hmm. because he started off as a teen crooner. Like before he even joined the Walker Brothers, he was kind of like a, a kiddie singer. And then he did the Walker Brothers. And that was kind of, you know, Righteous, Righteous Brothers-esque of that same era. And then then he had his first solo records, which were more adventurous. And then Walker Brothers got back together and it was weirder. And then he went like completely avant-garde after that from the 80s until he died making a record with Sun. Yeah, no, exa- and, and that's like... You know, but that's and, the exception. That's the exception. But that's also kind of the Bjork thing, too, where he's just transitioned into the solo artist that, you know, had an incredible range. But it wasn't like I guess he went back to the Walker Brothers, but it's not like he, you know, went out and started a new band and tried to be like, oh, I'm a I'm a I'm a different guy now. You don't you don't associate me with my old projects anymore in the same way that, you know, the drummer could have. Right. So as the person that has recently gone from being a drummer to being a lead singer, what what is your advice for me, Damien? You're fucked. You got to go back to the drums. You know now. now. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
<laughs> well, I had tours booked for this year that sadly have been postponed, but um, we did play like one show with this band last year uh, at the end of the year. And it was the scariest thing I've ever done. <laughs> I mean, it actually, it took me back to that jittery feeling I had when I was first playing drums when I was 14 and playing in clubs and didn't know what to do and was getting used to like the concept of a sound check and how to set up and all that kind of stuff. But um, I had um, Matt Cameron playing drums with me and I just had this inclination to go back and sit at the drums after sound check. And I was like, Oh, I'm not the drummer in this. band." <laughs> and then my brain just turned off um, until after the show. I don't remember anything that happened you know, from sound check until after we were off stage. Cause I, I think I was so scared that my critical mind had to shut down to protect itself. Did you guys play any shows when you were playing bass in the kilowatts? Yeah, we played, uh, I, I would say we played a handful of shows, maybe five or something. I, I can remember playing a couple basement shows and, um, we might've played at a, I think we played at a club a couple times. Uh, but not, I, you know, I left uh, pretty soon after that band was started. And I think on that seven inch, there was another bassist that stepped in and another drummer that stepped in. Like maybe there's one side with the first incarnation of the band and yeah, it came the out, other side it, with another. It came out like your sessions from like, I believe, 97, but it didn't come out till uh -huh. like the early 2000s. And yeah, and I don't even have it anymore. I don't. Have, yeah, when I moved to LA, I sold all of my records, even like everything that I had, because uh, I wanted to just start fresh. And I wish I would have saved some of it, especially the punk stuff. Like I, I sold all of that SST stuff, and all of the you know Discord stuff and alternative tentacle stuff that I had, because I, in my mind, I could just get it again for six bucks. And then I come to learn that you know, like SSTs, kind of like. It, in a precarious place. Lots yeah. of people have taken their masters back. Um, and same thing with alternative tentacles, really like, uh, you know, the dead Kennedys got their masters back from jello and they're, they don't talk anymore as far as I know. But, um, but I, I was thinking of it almost like my, like those were like my textbooks and I listened to them so much that they were part of me and I, and streaming was around by then. So I was like, Oh, if I need to get them again, I'll get them again. And, um, I kind of regret it, <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I did, I did like last time I was in DC, I went to the discord house, as I said, and, and I just went and re got all of the records that I <laughs> loved from them <laughs> and shipped it back. That's the one thing about discord is, you know, that everyone's going to probably stay in pretty good standing with that label. So you don't have to worry about those things falling out of print. Uh, yeah. it's not as and, precarious. And that's just remarkable. I mean, yeah. it's, it's actually remarkable as a, as a company, um, you know, to me, it's like as important of a label as any of the other um, indie labels throughout history. Like it's just as important to me. And I think historically as Sun Records or Motown or mm -hmm. Stax or any of those labels, but remarkably, you know, all of those other labels have been folded into, um, conglomerates and um and most of them never treated their musicians that well and uh you know discord has never had anything but handshake deals and as far as i know there's nobody that's pulled their masters away um which is amazing 
as a 40 year old label. Yeah. Like I'm just now racking my brain, trying to think of another independent label that hasn't, you know, had to buy itself back from a major label or had some sort of falling out with artists X, Y, or Z, you know, like it's, it's, there's just something about that scene. That's just so unlike any other music scene anywhere. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's also just the people, you know, the people involved. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess it's like, if you set a certain standard, uh, everyone just kind of falls in line. Right. And they were the first, they were like maybe the first indie label to offer health insurance to all their employees. I remember like in the nineties, early two thousands, they made that policy and there's major labels that don't even do that, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. And it's funny because like once you kind of get beyond, you know, the, the initial wave of bands, you know, there's, there are obviously bands that different times that are, are popular. Like, you know, you mentioned Hoover and stuff, but it's really like, centered around one band you know like it's such a a, like a a universe that that still like looms large like you know discord still puts out records but that stuff the fugazi catalog is forever going to be kind of the textbook because there's never going to be another band like that well minor threat is another band that you know it's an evergreen band that every time somebody discovers punk rock every new generation you know gets into that album Mm -hmm. gets into that minor threat stuff um, that, one of the bands, uh, well, that, that show that I saw with, with Fugazi in, in the nineties, the first time I re- still remember the lineup was Chisel, which was, um, Ted Leo's band at the yes. time. And then Lungfish, which I think is probably the band that I've now listened to the most from that label. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I just love them. I didn't understand them right away at the time. I, I was scared by them. <laughs> and then Fugazi, uh, and, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just like, uh, lungfish, I have a picture of lungfish in my, here in my little office space, studio space. Um, but that band is, I, I still feel like I discover something new every time I listen to them. Yeah. They're, and they're also, it's just so weird to think of them existing in the same universe as Fugazi. Like just, you know, obviously not diametrically opposed in terms of ideology, but just feels like they shouldn't exist together. And yet it kind of makes perfect sense. And and then there were bands that later signed to major labels like Shudder to Think, you know, um, which is, again, they they were a singular band. There's nothing else that sounds like that. And um, actually later in life, I started, I, I scored a film with the singer of Shudder to Think, Craig Wedren. And um, we're really good friends now, but he, he had been part of all the same kind of scenes as me, but he was, you know, 10 years ahead of me. So I never knew him until I moved to Los Angeles. It's funny too. Cause like, I remember the time, a lot of people faulting Shudder to think for signing to the major. And it's like, well, what are you going to do? Like, how do you get out from underneath that shadow of Fugazi? Like you have to kind of do something different. Yeah. And I don't even know that that was like part of the calculus. I mean, I, you know, I think they just were trying to, forge their own path and that was that was the way forward yeah no they're uh you know one of the most unique sounding bands too and a a band that i keep going back to that's like lungfish like you're saying i find i discover something new every time i listen to them yeah and i'll say you know anytime that um um ian and amy come to town and both of them have been on my show but um whenever they come to town in april we try to all get together with Craig and, and usually at Craig's house and, and then some other folks from DC 
come through. I mean, Ian Spinonius lives here now. Um, and, and that was another band that was influential to me when I was in high school was the makeup and also nature, nation of Ulysses, but to a lesser extent because they weren't active at the time. Mm-hmm. Well, Joe, this has been amazing. And anytime you want to come back on here and, and nerd out about stuff, the door is always welcome. Oh, sorry. The door is always open. The door is welcome. The door is welcome, too. It's a welcome mat extended to you, my friend. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you, Joe, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Joe will be back for a part two at some point in the future. Because uh, uh, there's a lot more to discuss. You know, that was a... We, we continued talking for like another 20 minutes off air. And my gosh, I love... I love when you get a guest just is just down to talk about music. That's, that's all I want. That's that's why I love doing this thing because normally that's what happens. Occasionally, not so much, but for the most part, it, it happens. So anytime Joe wants to come back on the show and make it happen, the welcome door is open. As I said, anyway. Speaking of welcome door being open, we open the welcome door here on Turn It a Punk later on this week for a fantastic musician, a fantastic artist who has put out a brand new, amazing record. Lydia Loveless will be joining us here to talk about her brand new record, which I I love this new record, Daughter. But more than that, to also talk about Columbus Weird Punk and going to early shows and playing in a band with her dad and all sorts of stuff. This is a really fun conversation with someone I'm a big fan of, and that's, that's why I do this thing. So that is coming up later on this week. And that's it. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of indigenous people matter. Go out there right now and get informed. Uh, Read up. You know, get involved. It's a a, a real pivotal time in in history. And we should all be kind of out there and getting involved and doing what we can. Also, uh, wear a mask. You know, just, just do it. You do it for for the sake of people around you. Just 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 do it. Just. Just wear it, please. And go there and make your own culture. Anyone can make their own culture and it makes you feel better. Put yourself out there. You know, like sometimes the critiques are harsh, so maybe <laughs> be wary when you put yourself out there. But, but you know, express yourself. You know, build the scene. Build your own scene. Make your own worlds. Do it. Especially now, you know, because the, the real world is terrifying. So do something to keep yourself going. Uh, sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you're not going to need them. Nope, not at all. Uh, and, and that's it. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. I love you. Thank you to Tristan. Thank you to Vans. Thank you to the patrons, Patreons. And that's it. I will see you next week or next episode. I'm never going to get that right. On this show. I hate saying goodbye, you know. I just keep rambling on. Bye. <laughs>